on air, online, on digital, digital. and the ABC Listen app. The Country Hour with Tony Briscoe on ABC Radio Hobart and ABC Northern Tasmania. And today the Scottish Highland cattle proving a popular attraction of the Royal Hobart Show. Chosen the breed for their temperament and their versatility. They, they do well on our land, on our property. We're in a fairly low rainfall area, so we chose something that um, are efficiently, efficient feeders and convert well, and yeah, these guys have done the trick on our block. And a high-level update on Ken the Kennebec. The big spot is positioned on the back of a Hilux, not on top of a pole at the moment. I have found a uh, replacement pole uh, on the farm uh, when I had a scout about uh, over the weekend and uh, of course uh, Kenny will get a very serious paint job as well. <laughs> yeah, the Premier there updating us on the status of the Big Spud later in the program and some more stories from the Royal Hobart Show including the popular Scottish Highland cattle. G'day, Tony Briscoe with you on this Friday which does mean Richard Bailey will be along in the second half of the program to detail the latest on the livestock markets. Not too much happening. Also today, a five-year study on various types of lobster pots to see which is the most efficient. The results will come up for you in just a moment. There's also a new national shearing champion. We'll meet him, and as normal, we'll check in with the Bureau to see what's in store with the weather and take your thoughts on any issues via the text line on 0438 922 936. 0438 922 936 is that number. First today, the lobster industry and the beehive lobster pot isn't the most effective when it comes to catching the product. That's according to the results of a five-year study which reviewed 14,000 pot lifts by 17 different professional fishers. So what's the best pot? According to Dr Lockie McClay, senior research scientist with SADI, it's the WA Batten pot. He told Elsie Adamo it was the most comprehensive study into pot effectiveness done in the country. The, the fishermen are always interested in improving their catch efficiency. So an important point of the study is that rock lobster fisheries in South Australia are managed under what we call quotas, so that a certain amount of catch can be taken each year. And by improving catch efficiency, it can equate to less time on the water, less fuel being used and increased profit for the fishery. So they're always interested in, in testing alternative fishing gears. So we work with them to test some pots that they are interested in. And yes, what did you find? We found, over five years, we found that a pot which we termed the Western Australian Batten Pot, it's termed that because it's actually a pot that has been trialled in and used now in Western Australia. And we found that that pot had the greatest catch efficiency. In fact, it was actually about 30 better than what the pot they traditionally use is. So we also found that that pot reduced the amount of fish bycatch taken. So that's obviously good from a sustainability perspective. And that improved catch efficiency overall, it just reduces the amount of fishing effort that goes into the fishery. Right. So 38% is pretty significant. Is that going to be worth it for fishermen to switch over? Are we going to see more opting for this type of pot? Is it even a pot you're legally allowed to use at the moment in South Australia? Yeah, so at the moment, the northern the northern zone rock lobster fishes, so the fishes in the area to the west of the state, so Kangaroo Island and to the west, some of those fishes have chosen to adopt the pot and currently those pots are being fished under what we call an exemption with the aim to regulate the pots formally in the future. Right. So if other fishers wanted to adopt this pot right now, are, they, are those exemptions widely available? Uh, yes, they can, uh, they can apply for an exemption. Uh, we have a management committee process where fishers are able to express their want to do that. Senior Research Scientist with SARI, Dr Lockie McLay. So who has been making the switch to the WA Batten Pot? Emily Rowe works as the shore manager for lobster fishers based in Port Lincoln. She and the team had been part of the study since it first started. She told me following its conclusion, the business decided to make the switch permanent. To begin with, it was actually sort of harder to notice the efficiency gain when you were using a small amount of pots, especially during the day-to-day fishing operation. But as we increased the amount of pots used on the vessel, it was obvious that there was an increased efficiency. And just how significant has the swap been for the business? 
So for us, it means that there's a reduction um, in days that we need to fish, which obviously reduces our operating cost overall. There's also been a reduction in bycatch. And we're lucky enough that these pots are able to use the Squeezy Neck um, seal exclusion device, which also simplifies our day-to-day operation. And there is a cost involved with switching over pots. The gains have been good enough that expense is worth it. It's been able to be recouped quite quickly. Look, we haven't recouped the full cost yet, but we hope to over time. Um, Obviously, we've only been using 100% of these pots for a very small amount of time. So we purchased uh, the full amount leading into this coming season and we look forward to seeing overall efficiency gain. So yeah, the results from this study could have a really big impact on the business long term then. We're looking to have an extra you know, 15 to 20% increase in efficiency gains in our catch, which overall is obviously going to reduce our expenses at the moment. Obviously, diesel prices are on the up. And if we can reduce any of those days at sea, we're obviously going to see long-term gain. Lobster Shore Manager, Emily Rowe. So is this pot going to become the norm? Executive Officer of the South Australian Northern Zone Rock Lobster Association, Kiri Tomazos, is confident everyone in the area will be making the switch. But it may be a different story for those in the Southern Zone. Approximately 25% of the fishing fleet has changed over to the new pot and we are seeing considerably improvements in catch rate. And just what does an improved catch rate mean logistically? Does it mean less stays out at sea, less staff needed? What? Where does it help? The essential benefits of increased catch rates is that there is less stays at sea, which is a multifactorial benefit. You know, some of the examples are You're using less bait to catch your catch. You're using less fuel. You've got a better and a a more environmentally friendlier uh, footprint. Further to that, ecological benefits of doing that. So there's a lot of improvements in reduction of bycatch. So it's extremely successful from all aspects of fisheries management. And are you expecting more fishers in the northern zone to make the switch in the coming years? Absolutely. As the, as the increased costs continue, then all operators are going to look at increasing their own efficiencies and ultimately their profitability. And I would say that majority of fishers in the northern zone will eventually move over to the new pot type. And there is an expense of having to switch over and buy all those new pots. How quickly would you expect fishers to recoup what they've put out? Yes, basically with those levels of improved catch rates, within one season, you will, you will recover the, the input cost, the capital cost of the gear. And but consequently, you know, when, you are, when you're replacing pots, the cost basis of each pot type is very similar. So it is a massive benefit in the long run to have this new gear type. And I was told in the Southern Zone they've been less keen to, to give it a try. The trial had a bit of a problem with damage to the pot. That's something you haven't been noticing in the Northern Zone? Northern and Southern Zone habitat is very different. In the Southern Zone, the bottom is is a lot more harsher. So some of these pot types might not be suitable. But having said that, I am very, very convinced that with more trials in the Southern Zone, the benefits will be uh, realised in that fishery as well. Executive Officer of the South Australian Rock Lobster Association, Kiri Tomazos, speaking there with Elsie Adamo about the study into which pots is the most effective. Well, from the water to the soil. UK soil ecologist Frank Ashwood has been visiting farms around Australia to photograph the things living on and under the soil. It's a fascinating world that we don't know too much about, but farm production hangs on the microscopic life in the soil and things they do to keep the soil healthy. He told Tim Fuchs that half the biodiversity on the planet is underground. There's a huge amount of life in the soil. People don't quite appreciate it. Perhaps um, 
it's estimated about 50% of the world's biodiversity is actually in the soil. And uh, that can take the form of uh, bacteria and other microbial uh, components, fungi. Uh, but there's also a lot of animals living in the soil, a lot of invertebrates. And that's really where I, I specialise, is looking at earthworms and other inse- insects and other things like that that live in the soil. So before you got into taking photos, you were exploring them anyway. Uh, to what level? Yeah, so... Um, from a research perspective, I look at uh, the interactions between soil animals and the, the soil itself, and also how they so how they support things like nutrient cycling and carbon cycling within the soil, uh, and that's more in a forestry capacity. But also looking at them as indicators of land use change. So they're really sensitive to environmental disturbance, uh, and what's living in the soil can tell us quite a lot about the health of the soil and the health of the uh, wider ecosystem around it. So yeah, how much work goes into to actually working out what is in the sto- soil? Uh, quite a lot of work. I mean, there's a lot of scientific specialists that look at different components of the soil. So you, you have um, microbial scientists, you have uh, people like myself that look at the animals. And it's quite a lot of effort that we put in. You have to do a lot of sampling to characterize the site, uh, go off and do different analyses if you're looking at the compo- uh, chemical components and the physical aspects, but then the biological stuff. Uh, it's a real specialism to identify some of these animals that I look at, for example. Uh, it takes many years of training to look them down a microscope. Uh, but you've also got scientists working in labs who are looking at the DNA. DNA of those and metabarcoding them to characterize what's there, uh, which is a little bit quicker. Uh, but uh, there's pros and cons to both methods, so I like to kind of work in collaboration with them. So I'm looking at stuff down the microscope, and then you've got other people in lab coats looking at it, uh, the, the, the genetic component of them. Yeah. And so, all this interest, while all this is going on, all the research going on, uh, tell me about where the idea to pick up a camera and start taking photos of them came from. Well, yes, yeah, good question. So uh, it's it was actually a lockdown project for COVID, uh, so it's one of the one of the few positive ones. I, uh, while most people, I don't know what it was like here in the UK. We had quite a long lo- lockdown the first time, and a lot of people were getting into um, sourdough baking and that kind of thing. Uh, and I picked up a camera. I, just, I saw some photographs online. A, a friend of mine, named, a guy named Andy Murray, has got a wonderful website, Chaos of Delight, and he has been doing this for a while. And he uh, he's been taking photographs of these beautiful soil animals. And I saw it, and I thought maybe I should. Maybe I could have a go. That'd be quite useful for me for work, for talking about the communicating the animals I look at to other people. And uh, I had a go, and I showed him my stuff, and he was really supportive and encouraged me. And then I just carried on, and uh, that was about yeah, about four years ago, I guess, uh, five years ago. And uh, I haven't stopped. So I just kind of kept going, and, and it's led to some really amazing opportunities. Yeah, but we were looking at some of your photos inside the shed here just before. Um, tell me about some of the creatures you found. I found, yeah, I was, it was really amazing. I was a little worried because my background is obviously looking at forests more. And uh, in forests, when you turn over dead things, you see loads of animals and you're always guaranteed it. I haven't done as much stuff on farms, so I wasn't quite sure what to expect. Uh, but it turns out these farms are incredibly biodiverse and I didn't have any problems. So I saw uh, some amazing animals. I saw probably one of the highlights was one, uh, some of the spiders that I saw uh, down in Melbourne Way. I uh, saw a, a peacock spider which is this incredibly beautiful jumping spider with this ornate colourful pattern on its abdomen. Uh, it's a shame it didn't uh, see me as a potential mate because they do these uh, beautiful mating dances which is what they're kind of famous for. They f- puff up their abdomen and they do a courtship dance and it's really stunning. Unfortunately it just wanted to get away from me so I uh, didn't get as good a shot as I hopefully could have. But, but uh, yeah I saw some incredible, uh, saw some um, other amazing predators, saw some uh, praying Mantis in in Perth. I saw um, an electric blue flatworm in um, Brisbane Way. That was really stunning. Um, yeah, more more than I was expecting. Way more. How do you find them? Uh, patience uh, and a good eye so uh, really if you want to start a lot of these things are running over the surface of the soil in the grass or the the crops and things so you just kind of have to get down on your hands and knees and uh, if you've got a hand lens that helps as well because some of them are very small you know less than a five millimeters most most of these things and uh, have a really good rummage and have a look and be patient sometimes it helps to stop and just get your eye in let things come to you Uh, but if you've got uh, some dead wood or some rocks or some plant pots and things uh, obviously you're in Australia we're in Australia so be careful of snakes and things that's yeah uh, but you flip those over and have a good look and you're, you're, you're going to see something so where we're standing here on the grass in the paddock at the moment um, you were what you'd get down on your hands and knees and just start looking yeah pretty much yeah just uh, drop down and um, start parting the grass or even better um, with a bit of patience just sort of sit there for a a minute or two and just kind of look around you and things will start to uh, relax to your presence and you'll you'll see a lot more than you expect uh, crawling around what do you reckon we'd find here Uh, well in this field you would have uh, probably hundreds of thousands of uh, springtails 
probably more, millions of springtails, which are these kind of insect relatives uh, that uh, jump very high. They can jump about 50 times their body height. Uh, yeah, it's like a cow jumping 50 metres in the air when disturbed. And they're only about two, three millimetres in size. Uh, but they'll be on a lot of this grass, a lot uh, in the soil. There's loads of them in the soil as well. You'll see a lot of spiders running around trying to eat those. Um, you'll see... Uh, in the soil itself you'll have loads of mites you'll also probably see some predatory mites running around uh, they could be quite beautiful some of them have got bright red legs and um, there's a huge diversity here I mean I saw things that I never thought I would see here I mean I came across a scorpion pretty quickly in one of the sites so that it was uh, uh, gave me a, made me nervous and then and then someone told me they're not they're not the thing that you need to worry about here so that was all right they, they're all pretty harmless <laughs> uh, yeah um, I saw a lot of interesting predatory invertebrates here a lot of spiders the mantis all those kind of things um, but I saw some other um, varieties of um, soil invertebrates that, I've, that I just don't see in the UK. I, um, there's these, these kind of there's a thing called a diplurin. It's a little carnivorous um, organism with two ta- like two prongs on its tail. Um, and you've got some here that have actually, you know, like earwigs, they've got pincers. You've got, you've got, there's some here that have got pincers on the end, which I'd always wanted to see. And you just don't get them really in, in the UK. Um, and the first farm I went to, I dug up and I saw one of these. I was like, oh, excellent. So you've got, there's a huge diversity of stuff. There's a lot of endemic species to Australia. And it was a real delight to go around and get a snapshot of some of these. I saw some things I just never thought I would see. Yeah, it's all happening in the soil, isn't it? UK soil ecologist and macro photographer Frank Ashwood talking there to Tom Fuchs. Afternoons. 12-year-old Olive. Nielsen has just been declared the children's mayor of Hobart. With Joel Reinberger. Are you going to make your teacher and your mum call you the mayor from now on? Yes. I wrote to have a (laughs) tram route running all the way into Hobart CBD and back out again. This is only a start. Dave in Hobart asked, should children be allowed to vote? Yes. Maybe 15, 16. Joel Reinberger. Weekdays from 1.30pm on ABC Radio Hobart. Coast to Coast, this is the Country Hour with Tony Briscoe on ABC Radio Hobart and ABC Northern Tasmania. Family is the theme of cattle showing at the Royal Hobart Show this year. The McSwains from the southeast of the state had a successful day yesterday as did other family cattle breeders. They have a Scottish Highland cattle studded penner east of Hobart. We breed Scottish Highland cattle um, and we bought um, two animals here today and we brought a, a bull, our main herd bull, stud bull and a young heifer that's out of that bull, so just the two animals here today. They're beautiful looking beasts. They are, thank you, yeah, they are, their, their looks are, are one thing, um, but we, we've chosen the breed for their temperament and their versatility. Um, they, they do well on our land, on our property, we're in a fairly low rainfall area, so we chose something that um, are efficiently, efficient feeders and convert well and yeah, these guys have done the trick on our block. You're quite dry where you are, so not a lot of grass growth. No, no, we've had, you know, we have good years and bad. This year's um, been pretty slow. This, the spring hasn't really happened yet, so yeah, the growth rate's really low. But I mean, it's it's a testament to the breed that we can keep the weight on them during these times. It's um, they they really are quite efficient. Um, yeah, which does suit those low rainfall areas. Now they've got those big horns. <laughs> what do people think about those? Yeah, it can put people off. Um, especially in the show ring because they are at the height of, you know, of your eye so they, they can be quite dangerous so you need to be wary of them but um, again that's probably the, why we do breed number one for temperament it's important with horns um, to make sure that the animals are as docile as possible uh, but in saying that they're integral to the breed um, they, they use them historically for you know, moving logs and stuff and getting under snowdrifts in Scotland so they, they do have a use and they also aid in their um, digestive system as well so they can Goes, that goes to part of their converting food. They can um, eat roughage and convert. Basically, that helps with their digestion, yeah. So you're breeding these as a beef breed. Do you have much interest? Um, look, we, we breed them for... They are bred for beef. We breed stud stock, registered stock. Um, that, that's where our main business is with the breed. Um, there's a healthy waiting list. Um, the demand for them around the country is really high. Uh, the prices, you, know, you, you hear... I'm certainly through your shows as well that the beef prices generally have, have fallen, but the Highland prices are at record highs across the country. Yeah, so how would you, how much would you pay for a, a heifer or, yeah. or, or a bull? Or? Yeah, at the moment there, there were some like extremely high prices in some auctions in Victoria last year um, that was in excess of fifty thousand dollars a heifer. Um, but you know that that was a bit extreme. Um, but generally, fifteen plus at the moment is, is probably the going rate around the country. And have you got any ready to sell? Yeah, we've got we've got a few on the ground at the moment. That um, we'll put a few on the market soon. Um, we, we had a good drop of heifers 
this year. So when, once they're weaned, we'll, we'll assess and see which ones we move on and which ones we reintroduce into our breeding program. Do you know how big or how heavy uh, your bull is there? Yeah, he's probably between eight and 900 kilos at the moment. So he, he's a four-year-old bull. So he's, he's um, pretty much mature now. He might fill out a little bit more, but he, he's pretty much full height. Highlands take a lot longer to mature than some of the other breeds. Um, but yeah, he'd be going probably around that 850, I'd say. Wow, he's, he's absolutely huge, but you'll keep him. Yeah, he's our main herd bull at the moment. Um, so we imported him from South Australia, um, a really good breeder over there. Uh, he's our third mainland bull. Um, so we try to, to bring in new genetics quite regularly um, to improve you know, our breeding each generation. Um, so we will, we'll have him for a few years and then reassess. Okay, now can you introduce us to your assistant here? Yeah, this is one of my four kids, uh, my daughter Hess, Hespera. Um, and she's, she's been out in the show ring today. I can let her tell what she got up to. Okay, Hess, uh, tell me, have, have you been getting these cattle ready? Because they look absolutely beautiful. Yeah, a lot goes into it. We wash them, dry them, which obviously takes ages because of their hair. Um, brush them, make sure they're all ready. Even sanding their horns to make sure they're all smooth and stuff to get them looking like this. And beautiful uh, feet. Yes, yeah. So they've had a pedicure. <laughs> Pretty much, yeah. <laughs> we shine them up too, make sure they're all ready to go. Spray them with black spray paint. <laughs> well, they look beautiful. And uh, how have you gone in the show ring? Yeah, good. I led Primrose in the show ring today, who ended up taking out Supreme, which was a pretty good result because we weren't really expecting it. So that was good. So what's good about her? Tell, tell me a little bit about her. Uh, well, the judge said that she walks well and she's just a good representation of the breed and that she has a lot of potential in our breeding program, which was good. And uh, you help Dad with the breeding and with the stud? Yeah, a fair bit. It's all run by us family, so it's kind of just all teamwork and we all chip in when it's needed. And you enjoy it? Yes, I do enjoy it very much. How would you mind me asking how old you are? Uh, 17. And do you see yourself being involved in this for a while or in agriculture at all? Yeah, definitely. I don't think I couldn't live without agriculture. Hespera McSwain and her dad Craig at the Royal Hobart Show with their beautiful Scottish Highland cattle talking there to Fiona Breen. Well, South Australian shearer Nathan Meany is our new national shearing champion. Nathan took our top spot at the AWI National Sports Shear and Wool Handling event in Jamestown. He was part of the three-man team who also beat New Zealand in the Trans-Tasman Challenge. He says it's great to take home the national title after a few years of attempts. Uh, yes, I think... I'm pretty sure it was 15 times I've had a crack at it, and uh, yeah, there's been four four seconds, uh, yeah, and a couple of fourth and a fifth. So yeah, it's sort of been been all over the place. But it was actually when um, I got called up there, I, yeah, it was sort of went a bit blank for a little bit, but it all sort of come to in the end. And no, it was really good to be standing up there holding the trophy, and I actually worked out how heavy that wooden trophy is. <laughs> <laughs> so a good lesson there to never give up. Keep having a crack because your day won't finally come. No, exactly. Yeah, and a couple of times sort of through it, um, to beat Santa Mornis, Jason Wingfield or Daniel McIntyre, you've got to be absolutely on on the day. And, and a couple of times my fitness may not have quite been there, but you can't go back and turn around and you can't change it now. And like I said, you had just had to be on, on song the whole time. And Daniel, Daniel comes second by four and a half points again at this time. And he was definitely the man to beat. Anyway, he, uh, he actually won the Open event. Um, we were in the Trans-Tasman together, and, and uh, it was actually good. And, yeah, good to be up there, though. So talk us through, you had to go, obviously, through a number of rounds. Um, how, did, how did the day progress? Uh, yeah, so on the Friday, we had our practice sheet. Uh, they come from the Sparks family at Mundunny and did a magnificent job on them. I think they had 2,500 crutch stuff and, and a top of it to Jamestown. And the committee, like I called out there on the Sunday to have a quick look at the sheep while they're crutching. And on a Sunday morning, they had 10 stands going. And I reckon standing around, there would have been another five or six lads that could have been sort of crutching. So it was an absolute tough effort to those guys for the teeing up what they did. And um, so, yeah, but for the, that was for the practice sheep. And, and then on the Saturday, we had an open event, which was sort of, I just took that as a, as a practice run, uh, just to try some gear and that out. And... Uh, made the made the top six in that. Uh, ended up fourth there, and just sort of one of me canes wasn't quite going right, so I changed a bit around for the for the Sunday for the big event. What's going through your mind 
through the process, Nathan? Do you are you you're thinking lots, or is it, do you just sort of get into a zone and just shear away sheep after sheep? Oh, there's a lot going through your mind when you're setting gear and that up. And I was going to change it about three times in in the heat, like before we started the heat. And then you sort of once you you bolt your comb and cutter on, it's just don't look at it and. Yeah, you just got to tell yourself that's exactly how it's going to work and, and then forget about it and have an open mind when you get up there and just open up when the time comes. Now, you mentioned the Trans-Tasman Challenge there and uh, a resounding victory and getting one up over New Zealand on home turf. That must have felt pretty great. No, that was a good win, that one. Yeah, and uh, I sort of didn't have a, a real good cheer in the open event, so I actually took it took a fair bit out on the Kiwis. So I actually had quite a good cheer myself against them, which was, which was quite good and... And like the crowd just got, being a local crowd, got really behind me. So, yeah, there was only one way to, that I had to prove a point to them because they, yeah, they give us a, a touch-up in New Zealand last year, or early in the year, sorry. So we, uh, we had to return the favour. So this has got a nice, uh, great rivalry going on between you and the New Zealanders now, but Australia is up. So you've added to our record of um, we're, we're keeping on top of the Kiwis. Yeah, no, it's uh, it's quite good to stay in front, and like all all three Kiwis, like we're all we're all good mates, and and a few of us have actually worked in the sheds together, sort of over in New Zealand, and and since we've done over there, and but it's always yes, yeah, sort of when you're up on the board, it's you're cheering for your country, not your not helping your mates out, so you want to be be out in front. Now you will be heading over to New Zealand uh, for the Golden Shears. What early next year? That's scheduled for how many times now? Will this that you'll be representing Australia? Uh, so this will be the fifth year of representing Australia in the test. And like last year, Daniel and myself represented the country in Scotland for the, for the world champs. And then I represented Australia back in 2012 at Masterton for the world champs with Shannon Warner. So between now and then, um, obviously you'll have a fair bit to keep you busy <laughs> through the season. But will you do any special preparation or training aside from, you know, just keep shearing between now and then? Uh, yeah, we've got a little bit going on. So we've got a contract run ourselves. So we still will go shear right up to Christmas and try to organise workers and sort of a couple of young kids keep you on your toes and, and run, buying and selling a few sheep on and off. But yeah, we've got plenty going on. But yeah, I, I generally don't do any uh, as much as like with PT or anything like that as I fitness stuff as I probably should. But um, yeah, I'll just sort of sort of keep going in the sheds and, and when it's coming coming closer, sort of step up and go that little bit harder each day. Nathan Meaney, the new national shearing champion, took out the title ahead of Daniel McIntyre from New South Wales and Josh Bone from Victoria. Coming up on the Country Hour, fixing old farm machinery is a school holiday project. An update on Ken the Kennebec and the livestock markets with Richard Bailey, plus a check on the weather. First up, the news headlines with Ellie Ward. Thanks, Tony. Heavily armed police have surrounded a home as they search for a US Army reservist who authorities say killed 18 people and wounded 13 others in a mass shooting at a bowling alley and a bar in the US state of Maine. Dozens of law enforcement officials have descended on the property. One of the Northern Territory's highest profile prisoner, Zach Grieve, will be released on parole today after more than 12 years behind bars. Grieve was 19 when he was jailed with two other men over the murder of Ray Nisiforo in the town of Catherine. The judge at the time accepted Grieve had pulled out of the plot, but under the Territory's mandatory sentencing laws, he was sentenced to 20 years without parole. Rescue crews have found aircraft debris during a search for a missing helicopter off Port Stephens, north of Newcastle in New South Wales. Police say a 54-year-old man and his dog took off from Cessnock Airport in the Hunter Valley just before nine yesterday morning. And a Tasmanian coroner has called for random spot checks of licensed premises to ensure they're responsibly serving alcohol after the death of a West Coast man in a car crash after hours of drinking at a local hotel. More news at one. Time now to check the latest on the weather. Michael Conway joins us from the Bureau. G'day, Michael. G'day, Tony. How's that weather out there? Sunshine across the state? It's lovely, isn't it? It's very settled today with mostly sunny skies. The the cloud is just clearing off the south now. But uh, about King Island, Flinders Island, it's still a little cloudy. Um, it's it's pretty light winds statewide, except into the far northwest around, around Stanley. It looks like there's 10 to 20 knots of northeasterlies at the moment, but apart from that, pretty light winds about. Any residual rain from uh, what happened over the last few days in the gauges? 
Yeah, we had uh, for the 24 hours to 9am, Mount Reed and King William Creek had 13 millimetres with the top readings and Razorback, had in the, I think that's in the south, had, had five millimetres. But uh, yeah, there wasn't a lot of reading, a lot of rainfall recorded uh, and we haven't had any since 9am today. And the outlook for the next few days heading into a new weekend. We're going to be, uh, is it going to be good weather for the weekend? Saturday is looking pretty good. It's going to be warm. The uh, high pressure, there's a high pressure system over us, um, and, but that's pre- going to pretty quickly move to the Tasman Sea by tonight, and we'll start getting northeasterly winds tomorrow. So they'll, they'll, they'll be pretty warm. The northeast, north and northeasterlies tomorrow will start to bring a few showers to elevated parts about the north in the afternoon, and then we get a, a weak cold front coming through overnight, and that'll bring showers, uh, light showers, pretty much everywhere around the state. A little bit more, more like five millimeters more like one or two, five millimetres about the west, one or two about the east, that sort of thing. So uh, that'll be overnight into Sunday. And then it's pretty uh, pretty fine on Sunday, so uh, just a few light showers in the west. And then we get a, a stronger front on Monday, which will bring the snow level down to around 600 metres. Uh, and we'll get more like uh, around five to eight millimetres through most of the state, except in the west where they'll have more like 10 to 20 millimetres, so a bit bit more rain there on Monday. Okay, and after that, uh, settle down again and a bit warmer? Yeah, a few showers in the west on on, uh, Tuesday, uh, and then just uh, it's actually settled weather in the longer term, which which will be nice. uh, with uh, yeah, quite with a ridge coming down off from the mainland there. Hmm. And warnings. What have we got at the moment? A strong wind warning for tomorrow is the for uh, all coastal waters and the southwest lakes as that front comes through, and that's the only warning out at the moment. And the coastal waters and swell for the weekend warriors who want to go out in the boats. Yeah. So today we got southeast to southwesterlies at ten to twenty knots. Uh, Tending a variable 5 to 15 during the day and then north to northeastly 15 to 25 in the evening. Tomorrow there is north to northeastly at 20 to 30 knots, but they'll be tending northwest to westly in the, in the west in the afternoon and then throughout the, all the waters by the late evening. The swells about in the west and south, we've got a south to southwesterly today at 3 to 4 metres and that'll be easing to 2 to 3 metres in the evening. Tomorrow, west and northwesterly, two to three metres building in the evening, but uh, there's also lingering southeast to southwesterly at one to two. In the north, the swell is a westerly to one metre both days. And in the east, we've got a fairly big swell of south to southwesterly, two to three metres, easing off to southerly at uh, one to two metres tomorrow. The, the wave rider boy at Cape Sorrel needs another kick. It stopped uh, overnight, but the Mariah Island is reading at boy is reading at about 2.4 meters at the moment so the blowhole will be going all right at um where is that uh Bishano, isn't it the blowhole that'd be sort of pretty fun today i reckon yeah maybe you should get a wave rider girl get rid of the boy <laughs> yeah. it might work better more dependable yeah. yeah all right that's it michael yeah that's 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 it today Tony. you have a great weekend cheers Thank you. Michael Conway from the Bureau there with the latest information for you on the weather. Might get a decent Saturday for a change, although the rain was most acceptable for many people out there, especially the farmers. And a little bit more coming on Monday. Now, coming up for you very shortly, uh, we'll talk about uh, a farm in the Central Highlands where the kids had a school holiday project, and that project was to bring to life, at least, all the machinery on the farm that had sort of gone silent over the years and uh, they did a pretty good job with it too also we'll have a report on ken the kennebec from very high the premier no less and uh, richard bailey will be along to see what's happening in those livestock markets all that happening for you very shortly and joel will be in too let us know what's happening on the afternoon program Hi, it's Lisa Miller. And I'm Nate Byrne from News Breakfast on ABC TV. We're flying into town for Open House Hobart. We'll be swinging open the doors at the HQ of ABC in Tassie. Have a wander around the ABC Centre. Meet your favourite personalities. And nobody wants to miss out on seeing Big Ted and Jemima. Come along, Sunday, November 12th. It's totally free, but bookings are essential. Online at abc.net.au forward slash Hobart. See you there. It's the Country Hour with Tony Briscoe on ABC Radio Hobart and ABC Northern Tasmania.
Uh, one thing you've got to do is go online to ABC Rural and have a look at our fantastic story on the West Coast Tasmanian sawmiller who has the last legal stockpile of highly prized endangered King Billy Pine. Some great photos there. And uh, we had the story on the program yesterday about the musician making that auto harp out of uh, the King Billy Pine. And there's a picture of that as well on that particular story. So get on online, ABC Rural, and our ABC Rural Facebook page and have a look at uh, that fabulous story done by Meg now, entertaining kids in the school holidays can be hard, especially on farm. But Central Highlands farmer Richard Hallett has come up with an activity that not only keeps his teenagers occupied, but also helps out with the business. It involves bringing old farm equipment back from the dead. Last school holiday, the family managed to get an ancient road grader going that had been sitting idle for more than a decade. Fiona Blackwood spoke to Richard at the farm at Hollow Tree, just near Bothwell. Got lots of old pieces of farm equipment that have uh, been sitting idle, or either out in the paddock or in the in the shed. And um, I thought, well, it'd be a good thing to um, to to get some of the older pieces. This is sort of this equipment from the 1950s, 1960s, and 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 get it out. See if we can get things going. And and it's a bit of a novelty for for the for the for my three boys. And yeah, so we've done a bit of that the last couple of school holidays. Well, tell me what you've been working on. There's an old sort of 1950s model uh, road grader, which uh, which has been was used on the farm up until probably 15, 16 years ago, and and that that was sitting in a paddock. Um, Tyres are flat, uh, and there's a couple of other things not 100. percent So we went and resuscitated that a couple of weeks ago, and and uh, the boys couldn't believe it. That actually started up and ran, and yeah. So we we're gradually getting things going. So that's one machine, another old truck sort of a 1964 model comma truck which which has been on the farm since it was new um, which my dad used to drive a lot and another there's another old tractor as well sort of a similar era which we've just recently got it up and running so you've basically got shedfuls of these these old machines haven't you we do, we do and it's it's good to get things out give it a run every now and then the long-term plan is to do some proper restorations on some of these old pieces of equipment because it was a sort of a golden era of of machinery uh, through that era and quite quite useful and handy pieces of equipment still uh, in a lot of cases. What was the boys' reaction when you first suggested that perhaps you could resurrect the old grader? Yeah, well, they didn't they didn't think I was serious because they, they thought, no, there's no way that thing still works and operates and um, I sort of didn't think about the fact that they'd never seen, this, seen it running. So, yeah, there's a few tricks to starting it and stopping it and operating it. Uh, that's not in the, the user manual. I don't know where the user manual would be, but so yeah, it's quite funny just uh, running through the, the procedures with them and a bit of an eye opener. And they were they were yeah pretty interested to see how it all works. And I think you were saying that it, it required a bit of you know pumping up the tyres. Yeah, well, I mean, I'm not a, I'm not a mechanic by any stretch of the imagination. So fortunately, we didn't have to do anything too extensive. But yeah, other than uh, flat tyres, a bit of water in the radiator. Bit of a, a bit of a battery, and and then sort of see if it'll start up and run. But we've got a bit of a starter motor issue on one machine, and brakes don't work on another one. So we've had to tinker around and hit a few things with a hammer and, and get things running. But yeah, we're gradually getting there. And what's everyone get out of it? I think um, well, I've got one son, Harry. He's keen on doing an automotive traineeship potentially in the next uh, next few years. So he's interested to see the, that sort of um, how things work just a good thing to do rather than just leaving machines sitting around uh, going rusty forever. Uh, just give them a run and yeah, keep the boys entertained. Yeah, I was going to say, and it's a great <laughs> school holiday activity, isn't it, where most people really have no choice but to take their kids to the pool or playground or in front of screens. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's right. It's a shared interest. It's one of those things that I've had in, in the back of my mind. I've always thought, oh, you should get this machine or that machine up and running again. And and then it's, yeah, it's something that they love doing too. So we, yeah, we can all get busy with our day-to-day lives, but it's good to set aside some time with on these little special projects. And uh, hopefully, uh, I'm hoping to build a shed that we can devote to restoration projects and tinker around on the weekends. And uh, yeah, spend a bit more time doing that. And um, what was the response from the boys when you got that grader going? Well, they all had their phones out and uh, <laughs> taking a bit of footage. And funnily enough, George, who just bought a drone, um, he had the drone out, and I was thinking, wow, this is the, the old and the new here. We've got the, the drone flying around over the top of a 1950s model road grader, um, getting a bit of video, and, yeah, so it's a bit of a mixture of the old and the new there. 
yeah. and they're definitely learning skills along the way, I suppose. Uh, yes, absolutely. Yeah, it's, I think it's a good thing uh, to to get um, give them get a bit of an education in those older pieces of equipment before before the power steering, before all the modern conveniences. So it gives them appreciation of what it's like to to drive brand new bits of equi- uh, equipment like we've got behind us here. Um, if they can um, sort of spend a, a few hours or a day or two operating that older equipment, yeah. And tell me, how do they respond when you suggest the next project? Yeah, well, they're always intrigued to know what, what's what's next on the list, but I don't want to get too far ahead of myself. We've probably got more than enough um, with these three these three machines we've currently got on the go. But, um, yeah, who knows? We've got a, there's another truck over here that... Uh, sort of late 60s model and, and that's um, that's also a bit of a rarity these days so there's no shortage of projects it's probably going to run out of time way before we, we get them to get them all done but you never know yeah. I guess having generation after generation living on this farm there are plenty of old machines left over to tinker with yeah there are and and today like we were lucky uh, we've we've got a couple of the guys who used to do um used to be mechanics with the dealerships um servicing a lot of that equipment and setting it up and maintaining it back in that sort of 1960s 1970s and two of them are here today because uh i've been i've had that in my list of things to get these guys up here for a while and they they, they keen to come up for a drive around and see all the old equipment as well so so they love it and they they know every nut and bolt in in these machines so yeah that's a handy resource to have Central Highlands farmer Richard Haller talking there to Fiona Blackwood at his Hollow Tree Farm near Bothwell. The boys getting the machinery back to life. And there are plenty more mechanical projects sitting in the sheds waiting to be worked on in the next term break. Here's George Hallett, age 19, and his brothers Harry, who's 15, and Fred, 13, talking about the projects they are working on. I thought it'd just be good to, instead of it sitting out in the paddock somewhere just rotting away, it'd be good to bring it back here and... I'd know at least let it have a run. It's pretty old. Yeah. Did, you th- did you think there was much chance that it would get going again? Yeah, I thought it had a pretty good chance of getting going because it's a pretty old, reliable machine. We had it running probably 15 years ago just to move it from shed to shed, so it hasn't been too long, but still a fair while. And what did you think when you were able to start it up again and have a ride on it? It was pretty good. It was good to see all the... Part, like all the moving parts, like the hydraulics, still worked. So, yeah, and oh, obviously all the brakes and things still work as well, which is good. And you've got some more projects lined up. What do you get out of, of resurrecting this old machinery? Uh, more vehicles to ride around and more, more graders and tractors to use on the farm, utilise and yeah, use them during the weekdays for all sorts of things. Is the riding around the best bit? Certainly. Yeah, it's pretty good. What are you planning for your next project? Got a few, a few, fair few Volvos and Kingswoods uh, sitting up in the, up in the our tip up on the hill there. So, um, be pretty good to get a few of those going. Yeah, yeah. find some shed space. And what sort of yeah. skills are you learning? Basic mechanic skills on just like changing parts and whatever and I don't know. Diagnosing what a problem is and in an engine and finding out what you need to replace and learning a bit of panel beating skills as well at some point to get out some of the dents in the doors and whatever. And and how much do you like doing this sort of work? It's awesome. Better than anything. Yeah. Yeah it's good to I don't know just seeing old things that are just sitting there running again. Think you'll keep going? Definitely. Yeah. Yeah. wonder if there's many fights. <laughs> uh, sibling rivalry there. George, his brothers, Harry and Fred Hallett, talking to Fiona Blackwood at the Central Highlands Farm. The boys are fixing up old machinery. Fantastic. Now to an update on Ken the Kennebec, who was forced off his pole at Sassafras by wind in an errant truck. Premier Jeremy Rockliffe says Ken is on the mend and will be back on the perch probably early next year. And he could have a female friend. The big spud is positioned on the back of a Hilux, not on top of a pole at the moment. I have found a uh, replacement pole uh, on the farm uh, when I had a scout about uh, over the weekend. Uh, we will um, design how that is uh, replaced, if you like, and uh, of course uh, Kenny will get a various, very serious paint job as well. My father um, has said, you know, maybe before Christmas, 
I think that's uh, very ambitious, but we might see perhaps in the new year. But you know, can I thank all Tasmanians and the people that have reached out uh, to support Kenny um, in his uh, you know, uh, rebuilding uh, efforts. Um, he is a bit smashed in at the moment, uh, but he will return. Uh, look, I'm more than willing, of course, to see if we can investigate, um, you know, Betty the Bismarck potentially, uh, but, you know, who knows? Kenny has, uh, you know, been there uh, by himself for many, many years uh, and he has many friends, which is uh, fantastic given uh, the outpouring of grief we've seen uh, in recent times. Premier Jeremy Rockcliffe with an update on the status of Kenny the Kennebec might have a friend, Betty the Bingy, Barbie the Bingy, has been suggested by Dave at Loon. G'day, Dave. The mind boggles with names, names like Penny the Pink Eye, Dottie the Dutch Cream, Polly the Pontiac, Ruby the Russet Burbank, Sally the Sebago, and on and on it goes. I'd like to suggest one, Dave. What about uh, Eddie the King Edward? This week on Landline, the veterans finding a new mission through farming. You don't have to put the uniform on to still display the values. You know, mateship, camaraderie, teamwork, all these types of things is something that, that can still be a part of what you do every day. And searching for the best high school agricultural programs. That's Landline, Sunday 12.30 on ABC TV and streaming on ABC iView. On air, online, on digital and the ABC listener. This is the Country Hour with Tony Briscoe on ABC Radio Hobart and ABC Northern Tasmania. Well, time on a Friday afternoon to check the livestock markets with Richard Bailey. How are you going, Richard? Good afternoon, Tony. Very well. Things things going okay? Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. We've, uh, we've, we had the rain last weekend. Now we've had a pretty chilly week, actually. It hasn't, yeah. hasn't been ideal, but um, look, we can't have everything and uh, certainly most of the state got some rain. Okay. The state of the cattle industry at the moment, Richard, how would you describe it? <laughs> um, no improvement. Uh, in fact, I was just thinking about it a minute ago. You know, cow prices are almost the same as what trade cattle prices are at the moment. Um, just going through the major markets in Victoria and New South Wales, there are very few trade cattle make over 200 cents a kilo. You know, like there are old ones here and there, and an odd vealer gets up to 260 or 70 cents. But just generally speaking, there's very few cattle make over 200 cents. A lot of your cow averages are 180, 190 cents. So um, things are sort of a bit the same as last week. The only probably major change is that um, there are a few better cattle coming into the market, and they are selling a little bit better in sort of, a, you know, the Mortlakes, Pakenham's, Woggers. So... Um, that's good. Um, season's playing a bit of a part up in New South Wales. A lot of secondary cattle coming into the market still. But uh, just generally speaking, that's where we're at there. We've got another store cattle sale next. It's crept up on me a bit next Thursday. Already? Uh, yeah. It's, um, one's crept into me pretty quickly. Uh, there are already, I notice, 800 cattle advised. There'll be more than that. But can I urge people who are thinking of selling to contact your agent? It makes it much easier for the agents if they know what's coming. Um, 11 o'clock start next Thursday. I won't ask you for any predictions, but let's just hope it's a bit better than the last one. Yeah, I think... I would hope it will be purely because we've had a bit of rain. I think there's a bit more. I don't. I, yeah, I don't. It can't get. No, it can't get where it was last two weeks ago. All right. Anything else in the cattle industry? No, I don't think so at this stage. Lamb and sheep. What's happening there? Yeah, lamb market. Uh, the heavy lamb market interstate has held up remarkably well, um, and in fact, in places improved. Um, bigger numbers: Bendigo, Ballarat. Uh, Horsham, Hamilton doubled, but they doubled from about a thousand to two thousand. But over the next three weeks, you'll see Hamilton go from that level up to forty or fifty thousand lambs a week. So that'll be pretty interesting. The only thing I would say is that out of the Wagga market yesterday, there were forty-eight thousand lambs, and they said that there were two-thirds of them were store lambs. In other words, that indicates how that season is. And it's not around Wagga, it's further north of Wagga, up towards Dubbo and that way, um, is very average. And so, hence the number of secondary store lambs, 
which is going to mean, I think, that obviously if there's that number of store lambs in that number, um, there's not as many killable lambs around as, as the processors would like. Um, a lot of these heavier lambs, you know, uh, that, and we're talking new seasons lambs right across the board here, a lot of them are sort of making anywhere from the very heavy lambs $165 to $180 a head, and then the good heavy lambs $140 to $165. Um, when you got into your trade lambs, a lot of them were cheaper during the week, and that's because there are a few more trade lambs. Uh, I would say people are saying, okay, well, we'll take the $5, $5.20 a kilo and uh, and run, and sort of that's what they're doing. This next uh, sort of three weeks, four weeks, will be a big test because, as I said a minute ago, we start to see some big numbers of lambs come in. But if uh, they, you know, they, if there aren't heaps of heavy lambs, um, it might hold up pretty well. And the mutton market? <laughs> no change. Uh, struggling to make a dollar a kilo. Um, and there just doesn't seem to be any joy in this in this job at all at the moment. Um, I mean, they're still killing reasonable numbers and all that sort of thing, but, but the price is just sort of just where it is and um, nothing's changing there. You know, yesterday at, at Wagga, um, you know, you... Really struggled a lot of sheep making sort of between twenty and forty dollars a head. Mm. All right. Well, let's turn to broad beans now. I sent you a photo during the week of the uh, the broad bean infestation. I call it at, <laughs> at the back of the ABC. It's actually a lovely big garden. Um, what do you think of the broad beans? And did you show them to the the two broad bean characters? Well, they weren't at the sale. They, oh. only, they only come to store sales. Oh. Um, no, no, no. We move on from broad beans now, Tony. We're, we're in the tomato season now. How, yeah. how are they looking? Oh, you didn't. You didn't comment on the photo I sent you. Oh, they're very nice. Very nice. But okay. as I said, that's old news now. So oh. we move on to the tomatoes now. I've got one growing out of the ground. I don't know where it came from. I didn't plant it. So, <laughs> so I've got Usually. one in. One. I like it. They all say Longford Show Day. Well, that was last week, but it's just been a little bit chilly. I think this week for me. Yeah, I reckon. But I'm sure. I'm sure there's a lot of people with tomatoes in hot houses, and um, and some would be out and about. But there's been some fairly chilly nights up here in the last week, so um, you'd want to have them covered. I think. All right, mate. You have a great weekend. Good on you, Tony. Yeah, Richard Bailey will be back on the country our next Wednesday to check the latest weekly Power Renner sale. And don't forget that store cattle sale at Power Renner next Thursday as well. We'll have Richard on uh, next Friday with uh, all the details of that. Hopefully it'll be better sale than uh, the last one they had. And that little tomato that I've got growing, I think it was from obviously from one of the seeds from last year's crop. So it's just appeared from nowhere and it'll probably give me the most tomatoes of all the tomatoes I try and grow this season. That's our country hour for this week. Have a great weekend. We'll catch you after midday Monday.